You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Good morning. Pastor Trent is in Washington, D.C. at our church plant at Veritas, and he is speaking today in a special celebration they're having there. We are continuing in our No Place Left series in the book of Acts, so if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Acts 21 and 22, but mostly in 21 today as we look at Paul's journey as he continues to move forward. Now, the gospel has been on the offense for the first 20 chapters of the book of Acts. It's going everywhere, going in all places, villages, towns, provinces, and people are being saved, and it's, it's moving forward. But there's a shift that takes place now in chapter 21. When Paul goes to Jerusalem, he becomes in prison. He stands before uh, Caesar, kings, magistrates, leaders in a defense of what the gospel is, why he's even in prison, and what does it mean to be following this Jesus. So there's a shift to defense. And then at the end of chapter 21, when Paul gets to Jerusalem, we see the conclusion of his third missionary journey. Now, things are happening. He is urgent about going to Jerusalem. He says in chapter 20, verse 22, that he is compelled or constrained by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And he doesn't know all the things that are going to happen to him when he gets there. Or he doesn't even know why God is telling him to go there and all the reasons for that. But he knows two things. God is telling him to go. And secondly, it's not going to go well. He's going to face persecution, imprisonment, beatings, and maybe even death. We've seen throughout Paul's journey that there were amazing success stories, amazing fruit. People came to become followers of Christ. The kingdom has been advanced. Churches are being planted. But we also saw that several of those people, including Paul and his team, were beaten, were imprisoned. Their houses were burned. Their status in the community was forfeited. They lost their jobs. There was a cost to following Jesus. So today, we're going to ask the question, what is the cost of discipleship? What's the cost of following Jesus? And I want to just give three principles for us today as we look at what it means to pay a price. What does it mean for the cost of Jesus? So let's begin reading at the end of verse 20, verse 36. And then we'll go right on into chapter 21. And when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping, because Paul's talking about going to Jerusalem and it's not going to go well. There was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Chapter 21, and when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos and next to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, 
And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed. And we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. We see Paul with some deep friendships, and we see the relationships and the sadness as he's moving on to Jerusalem. So the first principle we see of what the cost is to following Jesus, what the cost is to discipleship, first of all, principle, is we need friends. Isn't that really deep? (laughs) Wow, that is, how, how do you say that in the Greek, you know? We just need friends. We need co-laborers. We need co-journey persons on what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not easy. It's difficult. Paul is crying with people. He's praying with people. They're on the beach hugging and kissing and begging him not to go. Luke gives us some vivid illustrations of what genuine Christian fellowship or friendship looks like. Christian friendship is vital to those passionately engaged in the kingdom of God. True discipleship and making disciples and commitment to ministry, those are difficult things. There's a cost to your time, to your comforts, to your finances, to your safety, to your family. There are sacrifices to be made. And it can be so hard making this Jesus journey that we need friends, relationships, people to lean on, people to cry with, people to pray with. But the good news is, giving your life to the cause of Christ and serving with others in his kingdom who have the same passion and heart forges deep spiritual relationships. It bonds people. It connects people. I believe serving, people, serving in the spiritual trenches deepens relationships like nothing else. When you go on a mission trip, you get connected to those people, perhaps like no other experience on earth. There's just something to intense spiritual situations that bond people. To persevere, we need friendships. To persevere and stay on the right path and being held accountable, we need relationships and friendships. Not just hanging out, not just people to have coffee with, not just people who are in the same stage of life of you or your children are in the same stage of life, but people who are connected at the deepest, most spiritually relational place, that Jesus is what brings us together. Our kingdom ministry is what brings us together. When I think about my band of brothers and all the time that I spend with them, most of us do not have the same hobbies. We would not even connect in this life if it were not for the passion of kingdom ministry and making Jesus the authority of our life. We need these relationships. Some of you are trying to honor the name of Jesus at your work, and you may be the only one there trying to lift up the name of Jesus. And it's hard, and it feels lonely, and you don't know what to do, and you're unsure of yourself. You need a deep spiritual relationship to help pray for you, to care for you, to walk with you. Some of you even deeper, you're in a marriage and you've got a desire to follow Jesus, to go deeper, to take next steps. You want to go rich in your spiritual vitality and your relationship with Christ, but your spouse just isn't there yet. You need someone. 
You need a spiritual friend, a relational friend to walk through, not just to have coffee with so you can bash your spouse. But somebody who cares will cry with you, encourage you, pray for you, walk with you, and encourage you to persevere and stay strong. Open your heart to pursue friends in your discipleship journey. Take the risk. It's not easy doing this alone. Isolation is spiritual death. It's spiritual death. We must have true friends we can laugh with, cry with, be authentic with. Small groups are the best place to begin to seek that. Our journey of base camp, camp two, camp three, these are the people who are on a journey to deepen their faith in Christ. And if you're looking for that, you don't have that, jump in these journeys. This is where you'll find fellow travelers who will walk with you and care. We must have friends. Paul's crying, weeping, hugging, because it's hard. But secondly, friends and family are not God. They're not the Holy Spirit. That's an interesting thing, right? You've got to have them. But just remember, they're not God. They're not the Holy Spirit. They're not the voice of the Holy Spirit. And as necessary as they are, we must be able to distinguish between our friends and family's voice and God's voice. Amen? Thank you for that weak amen. <laughs> Preach. There you go. We need a good Baptist guy. Amen. Get your hanky out. Let's start away. Verse 4 says, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, the Holy Spirit is not telling Paul one thing and his friends something else. The Holy Spirit is telling all the brothers in Christ that Paul's going to go get beat up. And as his friends, they just don't want him to go. And then on down in verse 12 When we heard this, we and the people there urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul had great friends, loved him with all his heart. But the Spirit of God told Paul, you're going to Jerusalem. And all his closest friends and all his closest family that were around him were begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. It sounds just like Jesus when he said he was going to go to Jerusalem where he must suffer and die. And Peter looked at him and said, I'll never let you go. Die. And Jesus said, you do not know the things of God. Get behind me, Satan. Luke, describing it in his gospel, is now describing the same march for Paul as he heads to Jerusalem. And those closest to us just don't want us to hurt. They don't want us to pay a price. They don't want us to be unhappy. And we appreciate that, but sometimes those closest to us allow their emotions to get in the way of God telling us something very painful to do, something very hard to do. I've heard many stories in my years of traveling the world, over 20 years in mission trips and traveling the world, people who felt, students, college, high school students, who felt like God was calling them to go on a mission trip and a parent saying, I just can't let you go. I just don't think it's safe. 
spouses wanting to do something deeper, different, perhaps going on a trip themselves or doing something that was, was riskier, stopping, holding their spouse back from what Jesus wanted them to do. This is not easy. We must have friends, but friends, even family, they're not God. We have a family here, Eric and Elena Nelson. She went on our mission trip to London last June, and, and they are going to be our first family that we are relocating and launching out to London in our GCI process, Global City Initiative, with the International Mission Board. And they're getting ready now to move their family to London and be our boots on the ground and be our relational piece to all of that as they take their family and their two young boys there to relocate in another culture. And if you've read the news at all or heard anything, London's not been the safest place lately. And when they told their friends and they told their families, <laughs> not all of them high-fived. What do you mean? It's not safe. You can't go. Why would you do this? Why would you do that to us? Right, don't we love that? Please make it about you, P please. Because God told us to go. You may have someone telling you to leave your husband or leave your wife, saying, you know what, God doesn't want you to do that. God doesn't want you to be unhappy. God doesn't want you to live in that kind of environment. Let me just say, friends, be careful. You're not the voice of God. Be very careful. Maybe it's exactly God's will for them to stay in that situation. Not dangerous, certainly, and not all the crazy stuff. I'm just saying, so many times Christians will even say, well, you should just get out. You should just, I would just, I'm not asking what you would do. We're asking what God is saying. We don't speak for God in people's lives. Be very very careful because like Paul, it was God's will to go in to Jerusalem and be beaten in prison and eventually Paul would get his head cut off. It's very difficult in this journey when different voices are happening because this is where in our culture, the abundant life that Jesus talked about in John chapter 10 verse 10 and the American dream collide. In our culture, somehow we've tried to morph the American dream and the abundant life, and they're not the same thing, because the abundant life for Paul and being faithful and obedient to Jesus was going to be beaten, killed, following Jesus, Jesus himself being beaten and killed and crucified. All of the disciples, Peter, James, John, the, the other James, half-brother of Jesus, Stephen, they all died. That was the abundant life for them. Unfortunately, the abundant life many times collides, almost all the time, collides with our definition of the American dream. They're not the same thing. For some reason, we always believe that the job that pays more is God's will. And the one that pays less is not God's will. Or this is going to be uncomfortable. Why would I go into that? It must not be God's will. That feels awkward. It feels uncomfortable. I imagine Paul is going, 
this isn't working for me. But he never said that. It was God's will. We have to stand firm like Paul and the others. The Spirit of God is compelling me to do this. You see, every single one of us is responsible for our spiritual journey. No matter what our circumstances around us, we are responsible for how we're going to be faithful and be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in my life. We are individually responsible. I'm going to stand before Jesus someday, and he's going to look at me, and every believer will stand before Jesus, and he's going to look at me, and he's going to say, Todd, what did you do with the life that I gave you? And I think I'm going to say, Jesus, I I did the best I could with the wife that you gave me. I mean, you, you know, you saw it, and Jesus is going to go, I know, man, it was rough. I get it. I get it. So come on in. I mean, you, you paid a huge price. Come on. I think people think that, like that we think there's some bailout clause. Well, Lord, you know my husband. He was awful. I know he was. Oh, did I weep for you. You had a terrible husband. Just, it's great. Come on. I, I just don't think that's going to happen. It's not graded on a curve here. I, and, and that would be reversed. My wife would say, I did the best I could with the husband. None of us are going to get to do that. He, he's going to say, I assume something like, I know, I, I saw, and I was with you. I wept with you. I was rooting for you. I was encouraging you. I was praying at the right hand of the Father that you would persevere. You weren't alone. I don't know if we all think there's some bailout clause that we get because this was hard or that was hard. I don't think Paul went to heaven and goes, you know what, you know, the prison stuff stunk, Jesus. It stunk. I mean, like, it was just, you're worth it. Whatever I'm paying, whatever price I'm paying, you're more worthy. You're more valuable. I will. I will stay strong. I don't know what my wife's going to do. I don't know what my kids are going to do. I don't know some what I'm going to do some days, but my, my intention is to stay Stay on course, to stay, to persevere. I'm responsible. So then it goes to number three. There is a cost to discipleship. There is a cost to following Jesus. Verse 10, we see, in case there was any ambiguity, everybody already knew, but then this guy comes in, this prophet named Agabus in verse 10. While we were staying there for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. Now, you got to understand, if a man walks up to another man and starts taking his belt off, I'm, I'm nervous. You know, like, I'm not for that. And so Paul has, you know, that day they got the robe thing, and he got kind of like a rope that's wrapped around the waist. And this guy comes up to him, a prophet named Agabus, and begins to undo Paul's belt. So even in that moment, I'm like, I'm uncomfortable reading this. I'm just uncomfortable. But then he goes, and he takes it, and he wraps his feet in his hands, and he says, thus says the Lord, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and delivers him into the hands of the Gentiles. And then they say, when we heard this, we urged him, please don't go. So just in case you have not heard from the Spirit that this is not going to go well for Paul, I want you to know 
Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Holy Spirit. You're going to be in prison. And you look, verse 33, like there's not even a lot of time. The same chapter, verse 33. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped uh, beating Paul. And, and then he says, the soldiers bound him. They bound him. Shackles. This is a difficult question. And then Paul says, after they're all begging and begging, Paul says, why are you crying? <laughs> I mean, when somebody's getting ready to go get beat up, and we don't really need people, you know, making it about them, right? What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And I think, wow. Where is that language in America today? Where are Jesus' followers saying this? I'm willing to risk it all. I'm willing to give my life. I'm willing to pay whatever price I have to pay for the cause of Jesus. I, I hear this in India and in Muslim countries and other foreign countries, uh, people having to risk so much to follow Christ. But how does that play out here in America? How, how does that play out and what costs in our country when you live in freedom to worship? And, and, and some may be going through something at work or with your family. And denying yourself is a cost in itself. Denying ourselves of all the idols that are around us and how difficult it is just to morph right into our culture. But we don't have anyone going to jail or being beaten for their faith. So, so what does this mean? Paul is walking to Jerusalem to be beaten in prison, pain. And this is God's will. He didn't miss God's will. He's not sinning. This is God's will. But he's willing to embrace that if some way the kingdom is going to be advanced and the gospel is going to be furthered. Because he realized that whatever price he paid, it was more valuable, that, he, that, that Jesus and the kingdom was more valuable than any price he would pay. And I just realized people who struggle to pay the price perhaps have not yet realized the value and the worth of Jesus and his kingdom. As a matter of fact, those paying the price rarely even talk about that it's a price because they value Jesus so much that it doesn't even seem like they're paying a price. It didn't take Paul long to be arrested and beaten, but he teaches us something with his words and his actions and what he's modeling to be a true follower of Jesus Christ. And here's the theme that Paul's teaching us. King Jesus is my authority and his kingdom is my priority. King Jesus is my authority and his kingdom is my priority. Whatever the cost in whatever the culture, and whatever the dynamic, and whatever the consequences, when Jesus is our authority and his kingdom is our priority, our life, our calendar, our bank account, our family, our time, our behavior, how we treat others, and our priorities should look very different than people who have not followed Jesus. And while I see the cost Paul is paying, and I see it today in other countries, I struggle to know how specifically the cost or paying a price in America 
or Tennessee or even Blount County specifically, what that looks like. We've really have a hard time understanding that, reading what we're reading in Acts and how that plays out here. And then a friend this week showed me an article, a USA Today writer, and I was amazed. So I'm going to read the article to you. So it started out with Tennessee is the number one state in the nation in this. And I'm like, woo, woo, we're number one. And then the headline said this. Tennessee ranked number one as the most angriest and hateful state in the nation. Huh? That's right. I was like, that can't be true. So I had to read on, right? No. In a study done after compiling a variety of data resources, Tennessee ranked number one as the most hateful and angriest state in the union. In the union. In the nation. We don't say that anymore, do we? <laughs> and I'm a northerner, so I was like, have they been to the north? I mean, I'm not knocking it. I'm from there. I can fly. But I'm like, really? We're that? Yeah. It gets worse. After compiling a data of the most sinful states in America, Tennessee made it in the top 10. The volunteer state is the sixth most sinful state in America, but it ranks number one in anger and hatred in breakdown of specific sins. In addition to anger and hatred, the study ranks states for jealousy, excesses, and vice, greed, lust, vanity, and laziness. Tennessee was ranked third worst in the nation for excesses and vice, and was the nation's top 20 ranking in all the other categories of sin. Holy cow! We're number one in anger and hatred. We're number six as the most sinful state in the nation, we're number three in the specific categories of excesses and vices. Something's wrong. Dramatically wrong. And why I'm sure our first notion, because I get caught in the, after each service going, who said that? What, what was the criteria? You know, I'm like, I... I Maybe they messed up and we're four. Do you feel better? <laughs> I mean, what, what, are you, what are you mad about? But let me just give you, maybe this will make us feel a little better. The number one most sinful state in America is Florida. I'm going to give you all of them. Number two, California. Is that really a place to go woo? Nevada, Texas. Georgia, Tennessee, Illinois, Michigan, yeah, yeah, yeah. Arkansas, Louisiana, and number 11 is Alabama. Felt like I needed to go to 11. <laughs> but here's the thing. Of the 11 top 10 most sinful states in America, six of them are in the South the Southeastern Conference area, and what some would call the Bible Belt. 
Now, you may want to tear this thing apart. That's not my point today. My point is, are you kidding me? We're talking about the cost of following Jesus, and our state is number one in anger and hate, number six, most sinful, number three, worst in excesses and vices, jealousy and gossip. We're right there in the top ten. Have those who identified themselves as Christians truly made King Jesus their authority and his kingdom their priority? In a state, Texas, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee, some of the most populated states with churches of any state in our country. The most self-identifying Christians in any state are among those states. And yet, Five of them, six of them are in the top most sinful. What's, what's going on? You see, Tennesseans may be in this category as a whole. I don't know. But Jesus' followers must be radically different. There seems to be a big difference between people believing there is a God and believing about Jesus versus repenting and radically changing our life, our priorities, our calendar, our money, our family, our attitudes, and our behaviors. There should be a noticeable, tangible, radical difference between those who follow Jesus and those who do not. They didn't have any doubt in the book of Acts looking and going, Paul, Apollos, Titus, Timothy, Barnabas, uh, Aquila, Priscilla, Lydia. They're followers of Jesus. These people are not followers of Jesus. So what does it look like for us at the big ball games and UT games and the mall and movies where we walk in and we go, hey, there are the Jesus followers and there are not the Jesus followers. And what would we be doing as Jesus followers that made it so radically, practically, visibly, tangibly evident that we are Jesus followers and they are not? That's a great question. I asked it to our small group last Sunday night because I'm really wrestling with this because my neighbor's a great guy. He's a great dad and a great husband and a great family man, and he works hard. He takes his kids to the same ball fields and is involved in his kids' activity. The only difference I really see is on Sunday morning, I attend 1551 West Lamar Alexander Parkway in this building, and he has brunch with his family on Sunday mornings. And in my conviction, in my prayer time, Lord, surely there's got to be something different in my life and his life, different than what I do between 9 and 11 on Sunday morning. Because nobody's saying he's a Jesus follower because he drives the 1551 Les, Les Lamar and that guy's having brunch with his family. There's got to be a more identifiable difference. So our small group, and I asked that question, I want you to know it was silent for a little while. Because nobody, the wheels were turning, and we didn't know what to say. And then smart people who love Jesus began to talk. And this is what we came up with. And our list is on the app 
uh, if you want to see it, or it's, it's somewhere. But this is just what we came up with, so I'm just going to read it real quick and move on. But first of all, we thought, well, Jesus' followers should consistently and intentionally be engaging in spiritual conversations with non-Christians and encouraging, challenging, infant, nominal, or cultural Christians toward faithfulness. Would anybody agree that probably Jesus' followers would do that, and perhaps non-Jesus' followers wouldn't do that? Can we all agree right there? I mean, that just makes sense, right? I don't know how many of us are actually doing it, but, but that's what a Jesus' follower would do, because a non-Jesus' follower we're probably not. And then we talked about destroying our idols. We would destroy our idols. Followers of Jesus would destroy their idols. Pastor Trent said a few weeks ago that the number two, two top idols in America were comfort and status. I agree, and there are a thousand more. But before we can destroy or tear down our idols, we first have to know what they are. So we have to confess our idols then repent, tear, destroy, tear them down. Somebody in the group said, hey, my idol are my children. And their schedule and their what? And they come home, mom, I gotta be here at five and tomorrow at six and this day at four. And we kind of just go, yes, my master. Like we don't know what to do. We're like frozen. Well, if that's what they say, like I'm powerless. I have no say so in this. I have to go. I have to do it. I'm like really? Is that what it's supposed to be? We have to tear it down because we get so absorbed in the culture. We don't know where Jesus' kingdom stops and the, the world starts and somehow the world is all morphed together and it just gets. I can't do anything that affects my personal standard of living, my financial, my status, my priorities, my comfort. can't do anything that affects my family, our regular routine. Whew. Then we said consistent devotional time, gathering with our brothers and sisters in public worship, a hunger and thirst to grow in our relationship with Christ. And then, it's funny, we said this last week before this article came, we should be first in love. First in love. First ones to care for the poor, straight from the Bible, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the refugee, the foreigner. We should be first in love in those categories, not last. What does that look like? First in love to those trapped in sin. We, we cry for them. We're pained for them. We're praying for them. We don't judge, criticize. We don't hate. We don't get angry. We care. You realize that our society in this county, we're like the leading county in Tennessee in drug addiction and prescription drug use and addiction. It's crazy. Somebody just told me after this last service, they, they were telling me, we just found out that in one county nearby us, that 51% of the babies being born now are being born drug addicted. So we got an issue here, right? Everybody knows it. We don't like to talk about it. But we need to care about that. Jesus' followers need to care about people that are in bondage. I hope you believe that. So we don't know everything to do. This is not our expertise. But we're going to start a support group here on the first Monday night in April. And it will be every Monday night. Support group for people with life-controlling issues, temptations that they do not want. And we're just going to try to care and love and support. So you're invited, or if you know someone, get them here. It's going to be, we hope, something great. And, and that the Holy Spirit's going to fan that flame, and it's going to become something amazing, we hope. But we should be known for love, not judgment, criticism, and prejudice. 
As a matter of fact, a Jesus follower will not be known for those things. They will be known for love or they're not a Jesus follower. They might be religious, but they're not a Jesus follower. We got to be known for love. John says you'll know them by their love. Making Jesus our authority and his kingdom our priority. The first time I remember paying the cost for being a Jesus follower, I was a senior in high school. And I played basketball at that school. It was a large school. Uh, whatever the highest number was in that day, it was the highest, kind of like Maryville High School. And I started, and I was excited, and it was going to be a good year. And our coach proclaimed, because he thought, hey, man, we're going to be good this year. This is going to be a good year. Hey, we're going to have practice Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock. Wednesday nights at 6 o'clock. So I came home, and I told my dad, hey, Dad, I just want you to know I won't be able to make it to church this Wednesday night. The coach has scheduled basketball practice at 6 o'clock on Wednesday night. I don't know if you know my family very well or you know my dad, but he laughed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, I don't know what's funny. I'm getting nervous. Um, and he says, well, at the end of his chuckle, we'll just have to let the coach know you won't be able to be there. What? 17, know everything, start you don't understand, I got to be there, they need me. Do you understand the consequences for not being there? Now understand, this is Ohio. It's not like here, the principal is not a follower of Jesus. The coaches are not followers of Jesus. Half the teachers are not followers of Jesus. Nobody really gives a rip that you have a principle or a conviction. <laughs> so this is not going to go well. And I'm like, do you know the consequences? I'm thinking, you know, I could pay, run, climb ropes, push-ups. I could get out of my starting position. I could be cut off the team. Do you understand? He understood. He played basketball at Belmont. He knew what a coach could do to a, <laughs> to a player. And he said, I'll go tell him if you don't want to because your heart's not in it. My heart was not in it. I was about to pay a price that I did not want to pay. And he did. Coach, you're doing a good job, good year, good players, got a good team. Thank you for what you've done for my son. But I just want to let you know he won't be at practice Wednesday night. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? Humiliation. My friends, they didn't care about that. Embarrassment. And I wasn't. I was at church. And it wasn't this large, great youth group like we have here and all that. There was like seven people in the youth group. And I was there pouting. Mad, angry, resentful. I didn't want to be there, but I was there. And as my dad explained that to me, and we had oh, certainly other times in our life where this was true, but as I began out, I, I, didn't, I didn't care. I was selfish. I was a teenager. Of course, a teenager, I didn't have, my brain wasn't fully formed yet at 17. Uh, nobody's is, by the way. Um, uh, why we let people with not a brain control our life, I'll never understand, but that's another sermon. <laughs> so these people with half a brain were like following them. I'm like, I don't know who's crazy, them or us. What? 
But what I learned, even all he said, and this might not be exactly the way he said it, but this is what I learned after some of the pouting and all that went away. See, Jesus, we're a Jesus family. And King Jesus is our authority. And his kingdom is our priority. Whatever that looks like out here, we're not fudging on that. And I paid a price, not even one I really wanted to pay, but I wasn't the leader of my family. He was. And he paid a price too. Because his son maybe was angry at him. Lost some relationship for a little while. Had a pouting teenager. Isn't that redundancy? A pouting teenager? Um, relationship was broken for a little while. He paid a price. But then as I got over all that and began to talk, I realized that's it, right? King Jesus is our authority and his kingdom is our priority. And I had to learn that many, many, many more times throughout our life. And, it, and you say, well, that's just legalism, having to be there every time. It wasn't that. If that was the only thing and, and my parents lived like, you know, like non-Jesus the other days, but just made us go, that would be legal. That wasn't, it was part of a big package. We went on mission trips. We cared for the inner city. People lived in our home. We prayed together. We prayed publicly at restaurants. It, was, it wasn't that. It was just part of the package. Because he was our authority. And his kingdom was our priority. I could tell a hundred stories like that where Jesus just was our authority and, and, and his kingdom. And we... There are things that we did and just did not do because of, of, of that. And, you know, Christy and I had four children through high school, and they all played something or did something or cheered. And, and every, we just always were talking about, honey, what does it mean for King Jesus to be our authority and his kingdom to be our priority and for our family, for our kids, for this time? For this season, we only have them for a while. I know Billy Graham just passed away this week, and there's a lot of conversations. And I remember seeing multiple interviews with him later in life when he stopped preaching. And what was the hardest thing about those years you were just doing crusades and burning up the airlines and traveling all over the country? He said, it's an easy question. Every time I had to kiss my four children goodbye get on that plane and be gone for two and three months at a time. The burden I felt for leaving them with my wife for all those days was the hardest. My heart still hurts today thinking about it. But it's not tell you, it always ended with something like this. But I'm just telling you, Jesus is worth all of that. He's bigger than that. His value, whatever cost, whatever price, Jesus is worth that. And we know that millions and millions of people came to faith in Jesus Christ because of Billy Graham and his ministry, his movies. We know that. It was worth it. It was hard, but it was worth it. I, I wonder, Paul's going into prison right here. 
I wonder if he's thinking it'd be okay because in Acts 16, when I was in Philippi in prison, God sent an earthquake and I basically like just walked out. So I don't mind going to prison. There'll be an earthquake. There'll be an eclipse. There'll be an angel, something, tornado, open the door and I'll be out. But the truth is, Paul, God really did send that earthquake in Acts 16 in Philippi, but he's not going to do that this time. You're not getting out. It's just going to be hard. And I don't know why. I don't know why sometimes God does and sometimes he does not. I don't know why sometimes the addict gets clean and lives for Jesus and the other ones die of their addiction. I, I don't understand. I don't know why the people I counsel, some marriages get restored and redeemed and they're never the same again and they become marriage mentors and, and the other ones get divorced. I don't know why. Why my friends that I pray for diligently who have cancer get healed and other friends that I pray diligently for die of cancer. I don't know why. I just know sometimes God does. And sometimes God does not. And we don't get to pick that. I'm, Paul, sometimes God gets you out of prison, but sometimes he's not. Paul, I, I, it's going to get worse. You're, like John the Baptist, you're going to have your head cut off. You're not getting out this time. Why? I don't know. I don't know. I just know there's a cost to discipleship. And so as we think about this in our culture, nobody's getting their heads cut off. Because comfort and meeting our own needs are so powerful in our culture, I feel like we need to intentionally invest in things that challenge us and take us out of our comfort zones. We have to intentionally do that. So if you don't want to go to a small group, or you're just not good in relationship, force yourself to do this. Get a partner to take you there. Break through that barrier. Tell your story to someone. Go out and have coffee with someone and tell them this thing you're wanting to get off your chest. I know it's hard. I get it's hard. But you do it. You just do it. And... We've got three mission trips this year. Montana, 2% Christians in Montana. It's considered an unreached people group. Going to Montana in June and London in July and India in October. You may not want to do that. Do it. Pray about it. See if God is moving you to challenge you to new things. We believe Haiti is going to be a big deal as our Haitian brother here goes back in April. We hope to start a ministry that will be blessing to our area our church and to Haiti so I'm asking you this for your takeaway would you make a commitment make a commitment to do things that aren't comfortable intentionally forcing because you know it's God's will it's God's will for your growth to take those steps but secondly this is the big one and I want, I want to ask you to bow your head before I ask you because I want you to be looking at the face of Jesus. Dads, I want to talk to the dads for a moment. You can keep your heads bowed, but dads, would you be willing to have this conversation with your family? What does it mean for our family in Blount County 
to make Jesus our authority and his kingdom our priority. Moms, if there's no dad in your home and you're the leader, would you be willing to have that conversation? This is not easy. It's not easy. But I think it's the right question. Talk about it in your small group. Talk about it in your family. Lord Jesus, every context and every culture, this question works. I know it's a kingdom question because it works in every culture, every country, every people group. What does it look like for King Jesus to be our authority and for his kingdom to be our priority? Would you make that real inside of us? Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you would say for each of us. Every one of us has to ask that question for our own family. And I get that it looks different. There are certainly common denominators, Jesus, that your word is so clear on. But the specific stuff of how we flesh that out, we really need you. We don't want to be known for hate and anger. We want Jesus people. I don't want our state's known for, but I want Jesus people to be known for love. They're first in love. They're first in love. First in forgiveness. First in kindness. First in humility. First in self-control. Not first in vices and excesses. First in love. We pray this would be true of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.